on this episode of China Unscripted. A Hong Kong protester shares with us the trauma and hope of a city under siege by communism. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is Anna Kwok, the strategy and campaign director for the Hong Kong Democracy Council, a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Definitely. All right. So who's ready to violate the national security law? <laughs> I think we've probably all done it already. But more so. Okay. And what do you propose? Yeah, just talk about anything. And <laughs> maybe we'll find some white pieces of paper and hold those up. I know how much that upsets Hong Kong authorities. Uh, so, yeah, gosh, yeah. Give us give us an idea of what is what the situation in Hong Kong is like right now. Yeah, so, um, well, I think the global audience is pretty familiar with Hong Kong, you know, in 2019, because back then you would see millions of people marking, marching on the streets of Hong Kong and really packed, you know, all the streets that you can imagine. Uh, but now the scene is definitely different. So in 2020, uh, since the COVID broke out in Hong Kong and, you know, many areas in the world, the government has been using COVID measures as a way to really limit people's freedom of political organizing, political assembly. So from 2020 onwards, you really don't see anyone gathering on the streets or protesting anymore. Uh, and instead, uh, the government also implemented the national security law in 2020. So what that means is that whatever you say, you know, whether it's only, you know, a very simple slogan of revolution of our times, uh, uh, liberate Hong Kong, or singing the uh, anthem that we have, glory to Hong Kong, or, you know, even holding a blank piece of white paper, you can be considered violating the national security law. And actually, the logic they use behind it is that uh, whatever people are trying to do to voice dissent of the government or to disagree with anything the government says or does, you are in violation to national security. And that actually shows like how fragile this regime is, right? Uh, I don't think that a student holding a blank piece of paper can actually mean a lot to, you know, an authoritarian regime like this. But I think the fact that they're so worried of any, you know, possible creeks or possible opportunities for people to rise up exactly shows uh, they understand what was at stake and they understand how mass and how large the movement in Hong Kong was that a lot of Hong Kongers really didn't uh, believe in the one country, two systems and really wanted to break away from the China authoritarian control. Um, but sadly and unfortunately, right now, we really see a massive persecution going on. Um, there are so far uh, more than 10,000 political arrests made since 2019. And uh, we have more than 1,200 political prisoners. But imagine that is Hong Kong, the international global, you know, financial city um, that, you know, even the Batman movie has. Uh, and by the way, Batman is banned in Hong Kong for some weird reason. Uh, like also uh, Fight Club was also banned in China uh, with an alternative ending. And that just shows how the Chinese government is really trying to control not only the actions of people of Hong Kong, but also the minds of people of Hong Kong, that they're not even allowed to think of the possibility of reinventing the government or even just uh, changing the system of the government. So right now, Hong Kong is no longer rule of law, but rather 
ruled by law, by the national security law. So that is the state we're in right now. And uh, that is also why I'm currently in exile uh, with a lot of other Hong Kongers as well. Uh, you know, I used to be actually an, an anonymous protester. Um, I was organizing online, uh, formulating networks with uh, Hong Kongers from around the globe. But even that is no longer allowed. And whatever I say outside of Hong Kong or do outside of Hong Kong can be in violation of the national security law. Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, the, the, the revolution of our times thing that just, you know, communists are all all about revolution until they get into power and then suddenly no more revolution. I mean, the funny thing about that whole, you mentioned the Glory to Hong Kong anthem, that thing that happened recently where uh, the, the rugby match in South Korea, right, where they accidentally played the Glory to Hong Kong instead of playing the Chinese national anthem, and then the Hong Kong authorities threatened to investigate whether that violated the national security law, right? So that just Because shows- it technically applies to everyone on the planet, not just people in Hong Kong. It's ridiculous. Um, it's definitely a device for uh, transnational repression as well, because right now, you know, we have a lot of Hong Kongers overseas uh, studying, working. They may not be politically active, but uh, now they even shy away of sharing a post on Facebook because actually in Hong Kong, a Hong Konger uh, is arrested for sharing that uh, scene of the Hon- uh, glory to Hong Kong being played on the rugby field. So that just shows how ridiculous this entire thing is. And I also am quite upset that uh, the governments from around the world hasn't done enough uh, to hold China accountable. One of the things that, that recently happened is a bunch of people who used to work for Apple Daily got uh, arrested or they got charged under the national security law. So, you know, how, how is that playing out? Yes. So, um, you know, a lot of journalists, editors and previous members of Apple Daily, including Jimmy Lai, uh, you know, really the man of Apple Daily, uh, were arrested and prosecuted and charged, you know, under national security law. And actually during the protests or even prior to the protests, Apple Daily has always been that kind of big news media that would say, you know, uh, that would voice uh, what Hong Kongers think about the Chinese government. And I still remember growing up, uh, actually, my father is a big fan of the Apple Daily before. And uh, I actually learned all about, you know, the bad news from China, you know, the fake uh, food or, you know, the fake uh, powder that was from many years ago and including how they were uh, very corrupted during the uh, Sichuan earthquake that, you know, the government officials would actually uh, take all the money that was supposed to go to the victims. You know, that kind of things really changed my mind about the Chinese government. And I learned all that from the Apple Daily. So the closing down of Apple Daily is very symbolic because now we have lost that, that huge channel uh, where a generation of Hong Kongers learned the truth about China from. So with the closing of Apple Daily and also the stand news, uh, we can see that, you know, now Hong Kong's media space is very, very extremely limited. You mean, I mean, there there are uh, Hong Kong Free Press, you know, other uh, sort of more independent uh, investigative journalism still surviving, but I'm not sure how long they can survive for. And without these journalists on the ground doing actual uh, investigative 
of work, it's getting harder and harder for people outside of Hong Kong to even know what's going on, right? Um, now, you know, when there are things that deserve some sort of investigation from the government, uh, what is left is mostly pro-government media that would either turn a blind eye on what the government is doing or dressing it up as something, you know, they would say it's, you know, for uh, the people, but we all know it's not true. So, for example, even the national security law is quite glorified in a lot of pro-government media, which is just absurd and disgusting, to be honest, to read. So right now we can see, I think one concern we have is how are we going to educate the next generation and how are we going to make sure our kids, you know, people who are still in Hong Kong can continue to get that sort of information, right? Um, but fortunately, Hong Kong hasn't uh, have a concrete firewall yet, uh, even though, you know, the website of our organization, Hong Kong Democracy Council, was blocked and banned in Hong Kong. Uh, and we're not sure, you know, how far they would like to do with the internet website banning uh, in the future. But uh, that sort of information dissemination is definitely a very real problem. And uh, But so far, uh, Hong Kongers are still trying to find ways to get connected with the outside world and expose what the government is doing. But it's definitely a tough road ahead. Well, now you mentioned Apple Daily's reporting kind of helped you change your mind about yes. China. What what did you think about China beforehand? Like, what was that change? Well, that's definitely a very interesting question. And um, I think a question a lot of people from my generation does not really want to confront and answer. Because I think, to be honest, um, a lot of people from my generation used to think China could be changed one day, right? And could be democratized one day. And uh, I was actually born in 1997. So exactly the year of the uh, handover uh, of Hong Kong from the Chinese government, uh, from the British government to the Chinese government. And I think, you know, throughout the time that I was growing up, there were a lot of propaganda events that would glorify how China has come, you know, uh, in progress in terms of its economics, in terms of opening it up and to be more open-minded, to be more liberal. So I think there was a period of time that Hong Kong people were generally hopeful. And uh, the Chinese government also tried to do a lot of things to win over the hearts of Hong Kongers, like, you know, uh, sending pandas to uh, Hong Kong, you know, the Hong Kong park so that people can go and see them and think, oh, thank you, China, for doing that for us. It's always the pandas. Exactly. Always the pandas. And, uh, you know, those things just built up, you know, around my life. And eventually until I think even the Chinese Olympics in the two, in 2008, that really uh, made a lot of Hong Kongers felt that China would have a future that is, you know, vibrant, prosperous, whatever, because everyone saw, you know, the huge architectural uh, achievement and also the huge success, actually, the Olympics was. But of course, later on, we realized, you know, there were a lot of also scandals about, you know, a fake singer on stage, um, um, dancers or performers being, you know, exploited during the performance, a lot of things like that. But um, I would say, you know, once my generation was kind of proud to be, um, you know, under the leadership of the Chinese government. That's very interesting to hear because when we were there in 2014, you know, we saw how like how many people from your generation were protesting and seemed very clear eyed about the Chinese Communist Party, especially by 2019 when they were directly calling it, you know, calling out the Chinese Communist Party itself. What happened? How did how did people sort of change their minds? 
Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of things happened. So one of that was in 2012, the Chinese government actually tried to impose this new program called the National Education onto Hong Kongers, especially uh, uh, people who are still in school. So, of course, we know what national education meant was uh, they were trying to turn Hong Kongers patriotic. They were trying to have this new narrative of a prosperous China that would not talk about the June 4th massacre, for example, imposed onto Uh, school campuses of Hong Kongers. And I think that really rang a bell for a lot of Hong Kongers, especially for kids, for teenagers, because back in school, uh, we had to do, you know, a lot of assignments about uh, catching up with the news. And so we started to learn a lot more about, you know, how China has been corrupted, uh, how China treated Liu Xiaobo, for example. But that, uh, I think even for those news, we thought there was some sort of distance, right, with what was going on inside of China. Because after all, there was this facade of the um, facade of the one country, two system, that Hong Kong would be different. But then this uh, national national education program came and all of a sudden it's like come on you have to wake up otherwise you're just gonna become you know another part of china you know another city of china and i think from that point onwards uh hong kongers especially teenagers really started fighting because we don't want to sit in a classroom to learn about how to glorify the ccp and we also don't want to you know sing the national anthem like they want us to it's just unbelievable and that's why i think people started to change and really realize um, something is wrong. We have to wake up. And that's why a lot of people started going onto the streets in 2014. But I think even in 2014, there was a huge turning point, which was actually using tear gas. Um, I've spoken to a lot of my friends who were, you know, a bit ambivalent about politics back then, and they were not sure if they were supportive of the government or the protest. Um, but on September 28th, when the government started using tear gas on students who were peaceful, I think the public sentiment really changed. And a lot of people really started choosing a side of the students and the protests because um the violence is just, you know, uncalled for and unwarranted. And from that point onwards, uh, the government kept on using more and more police force and police violence, and more and more people woke up, you know, with that very blatant image of uh, violence and tear gas and whatnot and rubber bullets. And so I think it's actually an accumulation of miscalculations and missteps from the government. If they had not used, you know, the national education scheme, the police violence, I'm actually fairly certain that there would still be some people in my generation that are fairly uh, sympathetic, actually, to the Chinese government and would feel a connection to them. But because they came in too aggressively, uh, especially after Xi Jinping came into power, uh, a lot of people from my generation really bounced back and changed completely to support the other way, which is, you know, to not trust the Chinese government at all. It's interesting you talk about feeling like they came in very aggressively because I remember I was in China summer of 97 visiting relatives uh, and there was this big push about feeling proud and patriotic that Hong Kong was finally coming back to China. Like I remember in, there was a big song that was like very popular in karaoke that was about, the lyrics were something about it. In 1997, you'll return to me. Like, so it was this like big, happy oh family reunion type of feeling, right? And a lot of um, places were also playing like the Pearl of the Orient song, which was like the Hong Kong song. So it was very much like 
oh, like this is like a big happy family reunion. It seemed like when they first started, they wanted to capitalize on that kind of warm, fuzzy feeling of like, oh, you know, the British were, you know, outsiders. There was a colonial power. So like now we're, you know, we're finally together again. And then just kind of seeing that, like trying to come in with the soft power, but eventually they just couldn't keep going with that. They had to come in with the harsh, like, all right, well, now it's time for the propaganda. Now it's time for, you know. They should have stuck with the pandas, Shelley. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is crazy. It's it, From what you're saying, it sounds like if they just hadn't done anything, they would have gotten basically everything they want. Well, but except that then they wouldn't, beca- right? Because if if they hadn't tried to push any communist policies, then they wouldn't be well, able no, they to didn't, really like, run If they're Hong trying Kong, to do right? the patriotic education, like if they had just not done that. But if they didn't do that, then they wouldn't start transforming Hong Kong society. Right. And the whole point is that they wanted to transform Hong Kong to be more like they, they had always wanted to transform Hong Kong to be more like the rest of communist China. Right. And so they had to take steps at some point to do that. Well, except they by doing that, they activated a whole generation politically. Yeah. I think they... I would almost say that they didn't expect it, except they should have, because in 2003, when they tried to pass Article 23 and half a million people went yeah. on the street, like that should have been a sign. And I guess maybe it was kind of because they kind of- Because they, they backed, backed off, off for a long time after that. Yeah. I, yeah, I remember that. Well, I'm curious then, what was it that got you politically activated? Yeah, I think a lot of it really had to do with kind of seeing how Hong Kong has changed so drastically over the years. Because one thing I remember was, um, actually, uh, I have been studying abroad since 2014 in Norway and in the United States. But for every break, I would go back home and, you know, see how the streets have changed. And I think, you know, every year when I went home for a holiday, I realized I would hear more and more Mandarin on the streets. I would see more and more simplified Chinese on the billboards. And then I just realized, you know, my home has been changing a lot, but it seems nobody is very aware of it. And even when I was, you know, studying in high school or secondary school in Hong Kong, um, I could see how the news, you know, in the news, there were a lot of different events happening, but still people have been living their lives, you know, kind of relatively uh, um, a sati- in a satisfied way that they wouldn't really take note of what was happening. So I started trying to do a bit of uh, political campaigning mm-hmm. in my school campuses just to get more uh, thoughts or, you know, more input from peers around me. But I think the real moment that changed me was in 2019. So in June, when the movement first started. And in fact, at that time, I was actually stuck here in the US. And I was studying in, you know, New York University at the time. So I was in the New York City. And uh, I was, you know, just checking the online forums, Facebook lives, and, you know, uh, texting with my friends who were all on the ground. And I just felt so alienated and I felt so useless and powerless because I knew a very tough time is ahead of them, but I could not be part of that. And I could not be there to taste the tear gas with them. And I could not really be there, you know, just be part of my friend group. Real quick, uh, I, I, I tasted the tear gas. You're not missing out. Would not recommend. Zero out of 10. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I think... I. But, you know, you said that, but uh, I still really, really wanted to be there to taste the tear gas with everyone. 
just because I want to be part of, you know, this Hong Konger movement. Um, but out of desperation, I tried to do a lot of online. I started to do a lot of online campaigning, global campaigning. Uh, first, it was more innocent, like writing letters to the UN, writing letters to Congress members, you know, that kind of grassroots effort efficacy. But later on, there was this uh, huge global campaign where we were trying to put uh, Hong Kongers' demands onto the front page of all major newspapers around the world. So that includes like New York Times, Financial Times, all of those newspapers. So we actually did that. Uh, we put up, you know, uh, newspaper headlines in like 13 countries around the world. And that only took us five days from the crowdfunding to the design to actually publishing it and everything. I remember those ads, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I still have some at home, actually. Um, But that was, you know, really the start. And I think once you're in it, you can only go further. You cannot really back out from it because you started forming connections with people. You started forming friendships. And that kind of friendships is always what drives you, you know, to go further because your friend is like, oh, are you in? And of course, they'll say, yeah, I'm in. Hell yeah, let's go. And that's when you start, you know, stepping deeper and deeper into it. And so I started helping, you know, uh, supporting protesters on the ground. I would like have like nine different videos of uh, the actual real time broadcast in front of me of where the police are. And I would just text. I would analyze all of their positions and then uh, let my friends know on the ground, hey, like, there are going there's going to be you know an ambush in front of you just so don't go forward you know move forward backward or like move right don't move left you know some sort of things like that so i actually felt like a surveillance officer from the ccp for a while but <laughs> that was what i did and i also started you know supplying gears you know uh, um protective gears to people in Hong Kong and such and such. And that's when I started doing more political organizing. But after the security, national security law, actually, a lot of my teammates and friends got arrested back home. And uh, I looked around and then I realized, oh, my God, there's only me left. I'm actually the only person left on the team. And so I started to think what I could do more. Um, And uh, also, I was anonymous back then. Uh, and I did not want to risk, you know, my life or my safety or, you know, I did not want to give up the freedom or possibility of going back to Hong Kong. But eventually I realized that is gone. I have to put it, you know, I have to leave it aside. I have to focus on helping my folks. I have to focus on helping a city. And that's why I started, you know, becoming a bit more public. I joined the Hong Kong Democracy Council to do more advocacy work. But that's basically my story. But I think also the story of many other Hong Kongers is really for the people, uh, for the people we love and for the city, the home that we grew up with, because it's unbearable and it's unimaginable to think that my home has become in such a state. But yeah, that's kind of the story and the gist of how I got here. So by by coming out publicly, you are essentially choosing exile? Uh, You can say that, but at the same time, I think when a lot of my teammates, you know, went into jail, uh, it has also become more and more obvious that the CCP basically has all of our information, including mine. And so there are a lot of people in Hong Kong advising me not to go back. Otherwise, I would be choosing jail time. But of course, I did consider uh, whether I want to go back home to you know, be in jail. And of course, I wanted to do that for my friends to be 
with the people I love and to be in the city I grew up in. But um, there were a lot of struggle, a lot of very depressing dreams, nightmares, and, you know, that kind of struggles. But in the end, I decided it's kind of more utilitarian for the movement if I stayed outside and if I can give a perspective that can really reflect what my peers are thinking of. So that's why I chose, you know, the life of an exile versus the life of, you know, being silenced or going home and serving jail time. You know, I remember, especially on, um, I think it was July 1st, 2019, when there was, you know, the two million people came out on the streets. Like we saw... No, that was June 16th. 16th. June 16th? Oh, I'm getting my days. Well... Anyways, when like we we were there and we saw, you know, like families with their, you know, little kids coming out and just over the years, we saw like this really powerful civil movement growing in Hong Kong and with the national security law and the heavy crackdowns, like what has happened to that? Because it seems like there's there's the people in Hong Kong who are like either arrested or I don't know what's happened to them. And then this movement of people like you who are essentially Hong Kong exiles. What's, what's, uh, what, what has happened to that civil movement? Yeah, I think basically it's a very difficult phase to be in. I can't even exactly pinpoint, you know, where in history or where in the stage we're in right now. But uh, people or who are in Hong Kong, uh, they cannot say anything anymore. They cannot organize anymore. But of course, there are still people who are trying, right, with, you know, relatively innocent approaches or a very underground approaches that would get undetected by the authority. So, for example, in um, October 1st this year, which is the PRC Day that is celebrated with a sea of the PRC flags in Hong Kong, uh, we would actually see photos of uh, Hong Kongers destroying and fandling, you know, vandalizing those flags. And even though it sounds like a very futile attempt, but still it's kind of a signal telling people outside, oh, we're still here. We're still trying to preserve the movement and the spirit in a way. But of course, that sort of movement is now very underground. Uh, we don't really see the same sort of uh, civic society from what we saw in 2019 or 2014. And for those who are outside, uh, I think there are people who are just trying to settle down right now because objectively uh, we have all gone through a very traumatic period and people have to get used to a new country, which is really not easy to do. And uh, it's very hard for people to find, you know, a new way of living that really can settle not only themselves, but their family. So I think a lot of families and a lot of uh, people who are in Excel are still trying to do that, finding that balance. But of course, there's also a portion of people who have been settled already and are starting to pick up the political organizing again. So I think in the past year, you know, in 2021, 2022, we really saw saw a lot of uh, political organizations uh, starting with, you know, new advocacy agenda, with new uh, initiatives, again, in an attempt to build a movement overseas, uh, actually a movement in exile, because we're in exile, and uh, the spirit of uh, the Hong Kong society is also kind of in exile. So that is what's going on right now. So people are trying, you know, to uh, help uh, think of new ways to talk about Hong Kong. That is not only about the 2019 movement, but actually about the strategic uh, value Hong Kong holds in this U.S.-China strategic competition. 
And also people are trying to think of ways to, you know, resettle the Hong Kongers who are fleeing from political persecutions. So there are a lot of different things going on and a lot of different ways that we're trying. But at the moment, I think we're kind of in the trial and error phase where people are just trying whatever ways they can and to test out if there are a way that we can eventually go back to Hong Kong. But right now, um, we're still uh, healing from the trauma and, you know, tear gas, whatnot we have faced in 2019 and finding a way that one day we can go home. And I do hope we can, I can go home someday and I can meet you guys there without the national security law, of course. Uh, someday we'll meet under the teapot. Oh, just the pot. Or the pot, they call it. Okay. Yes. I miss this. Because the um, Ledgeco is shaped kind of like a pot. Like the building is like round, you know, like a cylindrical building. Okay. Yeah. So there were people who were like making these um, cartoons and things about like, because a lot of people were anonymous, right, during yeah. the protests. So the idea is like someday everybody could take their masks off and meet each other under the pot. All right, then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this, you know, this, this period of time in 2022 kind of reminds me of when we went to Hong Kong in 2016. Because remember, we went there and it was two years after the Umbrella Movement and like everything was really subdued and like no one was protesting and everyone was like super depressed or, or no one wanted to even talk about that, right? And then we were wondering whether that spirit of uh, freedom was still alive, but it was so clear in 2019 that it had been there all along. It was just under the surface, but like there was just too much political pressure going on to suppress it. And I know now the political pressure is way more intense, but I still also feel that there's got to be that feeling under the surface, uh, probably very widespread in Hong Kong. There just isn't that opportunity yet to do something about it, nor do I know what that something people could do would be uh, because it's so much more dangerous now. Yeah, I definitely think you're right with the observation. It's kind of the same mood from after Umbrella Movement because people thought people fought really hard. They put their lives into it, but it seems we were unable to change the tides of history. And that's why, you know, on top of the political pressure, the risk of being persecuted is really the hopelessness and powerlessness that people are facing right now. And I think uh, one thing that the CCP is extremely good at is to destroy the trust among people. And we're also seeing that right now. And I think that tr having that trust we built in 2019, the very, very genuine bonding being destroyed is what hurts people the most. Because, you know, back in 2019, the mood of the society was everyone trusts each other. I was organizing with, you know, the anonymous network. We did not even know of each other's names or faces. A lot of people actually thought I was a guy for some reason. And um, my anonymous profile was under a name called Random. So nobody knew who I was technically, but they trusted me with their lives and I trusted them with my life as well. Um, but I think after 2019 and 2020, when people started getting, you know, persecuted, then there would be voice, you know, scandals or talks around, oh, who ratcheted out who, you know, uh, who's the betrayer of the group, you know, that kind of 
uh, talks going around. And that's when you see that kind of trust no longer exists. Now, you know, when people are talking to me, when they're anonymous or when, you know, I'm talking to someone I don't know, we all have to make sure, okay, this is someone who is trustworthy. Uh, we can, you know, someone can vouch for them, you know, that kind of spirit. So it really changed dramatically. But again, I think what you said was right is that um, is the trauma and the, the, you know, depression from the movement, but it's going to heal. And eventually, I really believe we're going to see uh, the city being alive with the spirit of freedom and with the yearning of freedom again. But of course, right now, people who are in Hong Kong cannot really say much or do much unless they have decided they can go to prison. Um, but otherwise, uh, even, you know, letters coming out from prison, uh, we can see very encouraging message and courageous spirits from people. Um, but I think it's really a moment for everyone to let it sink in, you know, to really think about what the hell happened. I think a lot of people are still digesting that. Um, it's it's crazy. Yeah. Sometimes I, I wake up and I'm like, oh, I can't go back to Hong Kong. Like, I'm still trying to rationalize it and trying to understand what's going on. But I think we're just trying to get by, you know, day by day and see what is going on and how we can best uh, really pave the path back home. Well, so I think like I'm remembering this woman I met in the 2014 Umbrella Movement uh, at the Admiralty protest site. And she was in her 40s, probably. Uh, and, you know, most of the I think a lot of the face of the the protest movement were students like teenagers or people in their early 20s. Um, but like we had a lot of people tell us is that even the older people is that like they never dreamed that Hong Kong could have that kind of society where people took care of each other. And mm. I remember how like thrilled and happy she was about this whole idea that like her entire life she had felt that Hong Kong was kind of a cold place where a lot of people just cared about making money. And then to see this kind of protest movement blossom on the streets where she felt like, you know, here is finally like a community where people get together and, uh, you know, they take care of each other. Yeah, it like brought out the best in people. And I think that that is a very hard thing to kill, even with all of the terrible persecution and trauma that's happened to Hong Kong in the years since that. I think it's like very hard to kind of like kill that feeling in a person once they've experienced it uh, for themselves and once they felt kind of empowered by that. Doesn't mean the Communist Party's not going to try. Yeah, that's true. So how is the the, the Hong Kong Democracy Council uh, kind of dealing with this? Like, you know, everyone is recovering from like the trauma of it. There is the the damage to the trust. Like what what is the way forward? Yeah, so um, that is a very essential question that we ha we are still grappling with. Um, but, you know, the Hong Kong Democracy Council actually started in 2019 as more an efficacy-focused uh, organization. That So its establishment was mostly to pass legislations on the Hill because back then there was an entire movement in Hong Kong, right? And the HADC was more like an arm to help push some sort of agenda uh, and some sort of wish of Hong Kongers abroad. But now with the movement in exile, we have to reimagine what HADC is like. So in the past year, we've actually expanded our work into, you know, not only 
work on advocacy, but also diaspora building and research uh, production. And for diaspora building, uh, you know, specifically, it's exactly about building that trust and that coherence among our uh, our peers from the society. So actually, a few months ago, we organized a Hong Kong summit where we have over 100 uh, Hong Kong community members uh come together to Washington, D.C. for a three-day conference. And uh, it, it was quite a heartwarming scene because, you know, it's my first time since 2020 uh, to have that many Hong Kongers together in a room to talk about a movement together and to talk about what we can do together. And uh, even though these people we have been working together since 2019, but actually a lot of us have not really met each other in person. So that day was like a huge like internet uh, uh, friends meeting or some sort of like Tinder meeting or everyone was on a blind date that people were just saying, oh, hi, you ha- you are like this person I've been speaking to for three years. They found out you're you're not a, a, not a man. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> exactly. That was awkward. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's crazy. But I think, you know, this sort of face-to-face meeting is so important because once you have met each other, what you're developing is not only that sort of comradeship in the movement, but actually genuine friendship and genuine care for each other. And so uh, in that uh, conference and that summit, we also talked about, you know, how the movement should be structured going forward or how Hong Kongers in the U.S., what we can do, what we can collaborate on together, you know, to really try to uh, keep the movement alive. So some things that we have thought of is to have, you know, more town hall meetings of Hong Kongers, uh, to, you know, have uh, collaborative campaigns, uh, for example, on the HETO, the Hong Kong Economic and Trade Offices in the U.S. That is de facto, you know, the Hong Kong Embassy and the do a lot of propaganda stuff here in the U.S., you know, to have that sort of campaigns to wage against the Hong Kong government. So recently there was this global financial uh, summit in Hong Kong organized by the Hong Kong government. And what they wanted to do was they invited a lot of CEOs from like Citibank, uh, uh, Morgan Stanley, you know, this sort of the most uh, uh, well-known international uh, finance institutions to Hong Kong and they would share a stage with John Lee to talk about, you know, how Hong Kong is a great city for business, how business is back. So um, the Hong Kongers in the United States reacted with a campaign that we try to pressure these uh, CEOs from attending that summit because what they do is actually given credibility to John Lee, right? And uh, that is not something we want to see for sure. But of course, people inside of Hong Kong do not have the freedom or liberty to say that. But we as Hong Kongers outside, as Hong Kongers in the United States, we can actually campaign around it. So we, you know, uh, HADC published a report on, you know, all these companies. And then we also had a joint letter. And eventually uh, the CECC uh, on Congress actually published a statement of how these uh, CEOs should not attend the summit. And right after that, we started seeing, you know, five CEOs consecutively uh, dropping out of the summit. And they were using you know, excuses like they got tested for COVID, um, you know, or, oh, weather concern because there was a typhoon in Hong Kong, but that typhoon was not, you know, even that strong. And Hong Kong always has a lot of typhoon, but Hong Kong is able to weather through it. So they were using very blatant excuses that we know is actually succumbing to public pressure uh, to not attend the summit anymore. So these are some things that we're still trying to do. And hopefully with more campaigns and projects like this that can include more Hong Kongers, we can create that momentum again and let people feel like 
they are doing something and they're not as powerless as they think. Because I think that idea of powerlessness is really very detrimental to what each person can do. And once they think that they can actually make changes, everyone can be mobilized. Everyone can give their 100%. And that's what we're trying to build here, a political diaspora that is able to mobilize itself, sustain itself and push itself forward, uh, you know, together in this movement to make sure we see more uh, changes ahead of us. You mentioned in your speech at the Oslo's Freedom Forum that there was a period of time where you felt that even though you're you were physically free in the US that you felt like you were still mentally imprisoned by the Chinese Communist Party could you talk a little bit about that and how you broke out of that yeah for sure so actually that was during the period uh, where I had to decide whether I wanted to stay anonymous or whether I wanted to come forward, you know, as uh, an advocate for Hong Kong. And I think at that time, it was very difficult. The struggle was very difficult because I was thinking um, if I wanted to reserve the freedom to go back to Hong Kong, you know, to visit my friends, whatever, then I cannot actually say anything outside because the national security law, you know, they would use their uh, territorial boundaries, which is non-existent. They can even, you know, arrest an ET or a new EVO if they wish to. But um, they can use that uh, to actually uh, arrest me for anything I say outside of Hong Kong. So if I want to go back to Hong Kong, I cannot say anything here. I cannot even share a Facebook post or Twitter post, you know, about what's going on inside of Hong Kong. And also at that time, I felt like if I'm not able to say anything, of course, I'm not going to make a change. But on the other hand, I was thinking even if I come out, you know, as an advocate, you know, as a voice to speak for Hong Kong, what can I do? I'm just a person against this totalitarian regime that is arguably, I think, the largest in the century. And that sort of hopelessness and helplessness is really what um, changed me. You know, I was so attached to the idea that I cannot contribute to the movement. I would not be able to make a change. And I think that sentiment is shared by a lot of my peers as well. You know, every one of us alone in our bedroom, thinking we cannot make a change, thinking we're so futile, so small. And that is exactly the sort of mental prison that I'm referring to. Somehow we are boxed into thinking that we're useless. We're boxed into thinking that we're just very tiny individuals against this regime. But actually, in fact, we are not, and we should not think that we're useless, right? Because together, we have achieved, for example, 2014 and 2014, uh, 2019. That was a positive step of the Hong Kong civil society, even though it ultimately you know, uh, faced a huge crackdown. But still, nobody imagined, as you have said, Hong Kong would have that sort of vibrant society, right? But what is it made up of? is made up of people like us, individuals like us. And that is exactly why we cannot keep thinking that we're useless or powerless against a regime. That is exactly what the regime wants us to think with the crackdown, with the police violence, with dismantling our trust. And that is why I think, you know, for us to actually achieve any changes in this movement, we have to first remember we're not useless, we're not powerless. Everyone can find their role, everyone can find their use and uh, their contribution in this movement. And only with this sort of flexibility, imagination, then you can start actually seeing there are a lot of possibilities ahead of us. Of course, failure is one of the possibilities, but also there's also victory, there's also liberation. And that's why we have to break out of that 
feeling or idea of already rejecting ourselves and uh, to really think ahead and to see how we can move forward. You know, that's so interesting because, you know, communism always talks about absolute materialism. And like, you know, if if you view yourself as just, oh, just what can one individual do against this massive authoritarian system? But really, you know, when like everything you've been saying, like when people get together, when they form these bonds of trust, this whole, I don't know what you'd call like this emotional or spiritual connection that transcends its absolute materialistic view, that's actually incredibly powerful. And that's why, you know, communist regimes always try and clamp down on that side of the human experience. The, the any kind of civil society, any kind of uh, religion or spirituality, like any kind of thing that you could believe in that would give you the power to uh, feel that kind of like hope and I guess empowerment. Because it is so powerful. And, and if you are stuck thinking in terms of just everything as being absolute materialism, there's no room for that incredibly powerful human force to activate. Yeah, that is definitely true. And it's interesting when you think about it, right? Because in communist country, they always emphasize how people have to work together, how people have to be, you know, have that sense of collective. But of course, in China's case, they are the first ones to destroy any sense of the collective when they're faced with, you know, political organizing and dissent. So in a lot of ways, uh, the Chinese Communist Party right now is really not communist anymore. I think it has developed its own uh, sort of religion based on dictatorship, based on mass control, based on surveillance. And that's why we're seeing, you know, the terrible, terrible crimes against humanity uh, in Uyghur region. But at the same time, a lot of patriotic Chinese actually think that, you know, it's justifiable. They think that, you know, it's for the better uh, betterment of the country. And I think that is also extremely dangerous is when the Chinese government is actually trying to use the mass, um, the Chinese people, uh, to brainwash them into this patriotic mass that would consume any propaganda that is fed to them. And they are actually the ones that have been doing a lot of uh, transnational repression as well. So, for example, recently uh, here in the U.S., um, there, there was a Hong Kong protester who was posting up flyers uh, around uh, his college campus uh, in Cornell. And uh, when he was pasting up the flyers, uh, there was, you know, a Chinese student following him around and started, you know, saying things to him in Mandarin. And all of a sudden, that Chinese student came up and pushed him push our Hong Kong protester onto the ground. And of course, you know, this protest, uh, this Chinese student, he is actually, you know, a very diehard uh, uh, patriotic of the Chinese government. He believes in whatever the, the parties say. Um, but of course, you know, he's he's not affiliated with the state or anything. We don't think that is the case, but he truly thinks he's acting for his government righteously. And that is very dangerous. Imagine if, you know, everyone uh, is brainwashed by the CCP and things that way, uh, it can really do a lot of destruction to the civil society we're trying to build and the freedom we're trying to build right now. That reminds me of that case in, was it Manchester in the UK, where there was that protest outside the Chinese consulate and then the consulate 
authorities like dragged in a protester and started beating him up inside the grounds of the consulate. And then later the consul general of that consulate like defended himself to uh, Sky News by saying that like, oh, well, I was just I was doing the right thing by, you know, I was defending my country. And the reporter was like, you were pulling this guy's hair like and he's like, yeah, I think that was justified. Like it was just this kind of insane rhetoric that like, yes, it is my duty as a patriotic Chinese person to pull the hair of this Hong Kong protester. That is how I show I love my country. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I think right now it's almost like a war on storytelling at the same time because the Chinese government is really good at fabricating stories and, you know, finding the way that can uh, sensationalize whatever that is happening outside to feed to its audience so that, you know, the people in China, the people who consume Chinese state media, including sometimes even Americans, uh, I see some Americans who are extremely supportive of the CCP for I don't know what reason, but they would really support that sort of rhetoric the Chinese government has been putting out. So the CCP is actually great you know, I have to say that they are really good at making that sort of story, kind of like replicating the uh, Cultural Revolution as well, is making good stories that would turn the mass into their strongest supporters. So they, they don't even have need, you know, a lot of foreign agents, I would say. They can just use the mass to do a lot of uh, these dirty work for them. And they wouldn't get, you know, a lot of consequences as well because it's the mass is not the state affiliated agents. So I think that is also, you know, something uh, to be mindful of. And I remember actually, um, I was studying in, you know, when I was in college, I had some uh, classmates who are from China. And they did show me that uh, when they have to go abroad uh, for study, all of them, I think, have to uh, download some sort of uh, or follow some sort of page on WeChat. And that page is uh, about news, uh, international news, actually. But all the international news are written in a way, in a rhetoric that suits uh, what the CCP wants people to hear and listen. And these students cannot unfollow that page. They have to, you know, they don't have to read it every day, but they just have to follow it. But of course, it's going to appear on their newsfeed. So even when they're studying outside, even when they're studying abroad, they're still consuming the sort of rhetoric fed by the Chinese government. And eventually they would think that, you know, the world is evil. Only the uh, CCP knows what they're doing and they're truly good to the people. You know, this kind of rhetoric that is uh, always brainwashing uh, the many uh, people who are either in South China, overseas. Um, but I do have to say, even with that, uh, we have seen earlier with the Seatong Bridge that there are still a lot of Chinese nationals who are very conscious of what has been going on. They are supportive of the Hong Kong movement, supportive of you know freedom and democracy, and they understand what the CCP has been doing. So even with that, I think we always have to make that uh, um, uh, distinction between the Chinese government and the Chinese people that even though the Chinese government has been able to mobilize a lot of Chinese people, not every Chinese person, not every people from China is actually automatically supportive of their government. But um, yeah, I digress a bit, but uh, that is something that I have been observing and uh, it's quite, uh, you know, a historical turn to see how the Cultural Revolution is coming back again. I do think that you see them implementing some of those things in Hong Kong 
uh, like now they can do the patriotic education campaign, right? Like there's nothing that's going to stop them from doing that. Because if you protest it, then you're violating national security. Yeah. So there's no, there's no way to stop that anymore. But like, uh, like you mentioned, uh, with your, with your Chinese, um, like the other Chinese students at your university, like that is the kind of thing that has been going on in China for decades, uh, and is now going to happen to Hong Kong. It's yeah. So what do you think uh, governments around the world should be doing to help Hong Kong? Um, I think there are a lot of things governments around the world can do. So first uh, is sanction, definitely. Sanction the Hong Kong government officials, sanction the Hong Kong police force and the judges, the national security law judges who have been you know, doing making the persecution on these cases. Um, they should be sanctioned you know, to be held accountable. And I do think that sanctions can have an actual impact on these people because a lot of them, even though they plead to be uh, patriotic China, uh, to the Chinese government and loyal to the Chinese government, they actually have dual citizenship and they actually do want to retire in, you know, the US, UK, you know, other countries because even they know the CCP is not reliable and uh, they do want to be careful with that. So I think sanctioning is very useful in actually making these people more cautious in their behavior and perhaps perhaps even, you know, quit the government or stop what they're doing. Uh, so that is the first thing. And then I think second thing is also uh, it's worthy for uh, governments around the world to start seeing and re-examining uh, whether companies, international companies, should have more policies or guidance on when they conduct business with Chinese businesses and when they conduct business in Hong Kong, for example. Because uh, in the past three years, we have actually seen more and more cases of how international companies are even silencing Hong Kongers. Um, for example, HSBC, a very notorious bank, uh, has been uh, freezing the accounts of uh, uh, Excel Hong Kong politician and Hong Kong uh, pro-democracy organizations. And even, for example, PayPal. PayPal uh, also, out of the blue, uh, froze one of the accounts of the uh, pro-democracy groups in Hong Kong, saying they are of too excessive risk. So this sort of behavior is happening more and more often. And I do feel that if governments do not step in to stop uh, companies from doing that, uh, companies will continue to do that because honestly, they want to make more money, right? Who doesn't want more money? Um, and when they want to do it, uh, they just keep pressing the line until they're told no. So in that case, it's very important. And that's why uh, in the U.S. right now, uh, there's also the bill called the Hong Kong Business Integrity and Transparency Act in Congress. And uh, we're trying to, you know, have it uh, pushed forward as well as a bipartisan legislation. But, you know, this is some of the starting point that we can see in terms of uh, efficacy items. Um, and another thing I think is helping Hong Kongers who are fleeing from political persecution to resettle. Uh, and that includes, you know, providing humanitarian pathways for people to come and helping them to uh, integrate and uh, settle in the new country so that they can continue some sort of, you know, efficacy work for Hong Kong and against Chinese government. Um, but, you know, last but not least, I think in general, uh, we see that a lot of uh, governments from around the world are still trying to have some sort of diplomatic discussion with China to leave that door open. While I think that uh, it's fair and reasonable for governments to think they want to leave that discussion China open, they also have to recognize and acknowledge China is not a faithful international player is not going to abide by any of the regulations or you know agreements you have laid out. Look at 
how one country, two systems turned out, right? So there are more, you know, more evidence than enough to say that China is not trustworthy and it's not a global player. So I really urge that when global governments, you know, make their plans, they have to realize that they cannot think that, oh, China is going to change, China is going to be democratized. No, it's a fairy tale. It's not going to happen. So yeah, these are just, you know, some very basic steps, but I do hope the global governments can come together soon uh, to have a more comprehensive and coherent plan on China, because otherwise um, we're not going to be able to main, uh, contain China when it's trying to expand so aggressively around the world. Yeah, people really need to realize how corrosive Chinese money can be. I mean, uh, what the CCP did to Hong Kong really would not have been as possible if it were not for all of the Hong Kong politicians and business leaders who sold Hong Kong out. And, you know, that's going to be their children, their descendants that are going to no, suffer no, no. consequences. They're in Canada or the UK or something like that. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Where are Carrie that's Lane's true. kids right well, now? I think her she's got family in the UK, right? That's yeah. where. Yeah, yeah. she has. Well, I hope everyone in the UK can say a very special hello. <laughs> uh, I am not advocating violence of any kind. That didn't sound very good, Chris. Um, special hellos. Well, Carrie Lam actually got sanctioned by the US. Remember? Yeah, she she had she couldn't get she was only getting paid in cash or like little yes home was filled with cash. Yeah, for I have no Carrie idea Lam. how she's handling the cash. Yeah, but no, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sympathizing with her. <laughs> I mean, I, I always like Carrie Lam. That's how, you know, uh, we've got this Lego figurine of her behind us. Oh, it's, really? It's not Lego. It's Uncle Plastic. Yes. Like, it was this uh, Hong Kong company that made these, like, kind of Lego-ish plastic figurines of, like, the protest movement. Yeah. Uh, they, they, but, don't, they don't make those ones anymore. No. But, like, they had one. <laughs> They're one of Carrie Lam. She's holding a handgun. And I, that, that's the one I got because I love how just, like, thuggish and brutish she looks. Uh, so maybe one more question before we go. What can uh, you, just like ordinary people uh, outside of Hong Kong do to help Hong like Kong? Like people watching this show right now. Yeah, because we talked about governments, but we have a pretty wide viewership mm -hmm. and they always feel like like they would like to do something to help. Well, I, I already said they can say a special hello to Carrie Lam's family. <laughs> Other than that. Yeah. What, what what can people do? Yeah, a special hello to the HAETO and, you know, the Hong Kong uh, government organized uh, events as well is very important. We have been trying to protest at those events. Um, but I think in general, there are actually a lot of things each and every one of you can do. One is, first one is boycott Chinese goods. Uh, there are a lot of Chinese goods that are made with uh, forced labor. And uh, every time you're paying for a Chinese good, you're actually paying for the regime to sustain the regime and giving them the power to continue with their expansion and continue with their violence wage on its people. And uh, I think secondly, it's also important to uh, actually uh, support uh, Hong Kong organizations who are doing advocacy work overseas. So that includes, you know, supporting the legislations that are trying to propose, uh, supporting the events that are trying to host. And also, if possible, you know, in your community, perhaps there are some Hong Kongers as well. And they are always, you know, looking for more community support and community events. So if you can, you know, join them, pay them a visit, I think that would be much appreciated as well. And I think last but not least is really to keep an eye out for Hong Kong and see you know, how Hong Kong is becoming, um, because I do believe one day it has huge implications to, you know, global affairs and events around you. It's not only about 
about Hong Kong. It's never only about Hong Kong. It's always about freedom around the world. So please do keep paying attention to uh, the cause of Hong Kong and trying to, you know, uh, uh, react to whatever the Hong Kong organizations or uh, uh, advocates are trying to get your support on. And oh, also one last thing, sorry. So um, one thing that I think is interesting is that, so I'm sure you have viewerships from people from all across, you know, different walks of life, different careers. And I think in different industries, no matter what industry it is, uh, we're having more and more Chinese money, right? Uh, and there are more and more, you know, corrosive, uh, economic corrosive behaviors that are at play. But really, uh, people are normalizing it. I think people are getting you know, more and more used to it. So it's really up to each and every one of you to call it out, uh, to stop it from happening. Uh, eventually, I hope that uh, you know, we're able to uh, start decoupling from China. And because that is essential uh, to stop giving China more power and more credibility to what they're trying to do. And that's why, yeah, look out. Uh, try to start that wave of decoupling from China, boycott Chinese goods, and support uh, Hong Kong legislations. Great. Great tips. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad you're not anonymous. (laughs) Thank you for having me. And yeah, keep up the good fight. Where can people go to find more information about uh, you or the Hong Kong Democracy Council? Yes, yeah, so both the Hong Kong Democracy Council and myself are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So please follow us for more information. You can also visit the website of uh, HADC, which is www.hadc.us, where you can get more information about the work we have been doing and also support us in the ways you can. Thank you. Great, thank you. Wow, I mean, it's always it's always really something to kind of go back and reminisce about our times in Hong Kong. And it's really, you know, I mean, the city really, it's, it's shut up, Shelly, you're crying. I'm not crying. <laughs> uh, I mean, okay. I will admit to tearing up a little bit during this interview. Yeah. I really only teared up during the protest when I didn't have my mask on. <laughs> That's where you went with it. Yeah. 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 Cause, yeah. cause I suppress my emotions, Shelly. I do remember seeing some guy, uh, this was when we were back in October where there was like a lot more tear gas and some, some protesters just like walking along without a mask, without anything. And just like a towel around his neck. I'm immune now. And he just like, the tear gas started going off and he kind of just like put the towel over his nose and was like, cool. (laughs) Those were times. They were times. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to go back to something that Anna Kwok said about um, what people could do uh-huh. or about uh, uh, the CCP and specifically talking about, you know, Chinese money and in your own industry, kind of keeping an eye out for whether um, Chinese money is coming in. And, um, you know, when we started China Uncensored, I did not work on China Uncensored for full time for many years. I was working as a copywriter in an ad agency. Because we had no money. Because we had no money. Uh, And I remember very clearly that there was a time when the parent company of my ad agency was thinking of going into China. Mm. uh, And like establishing some ad agencies there to do business. And I actually went to the CEO, uh, not even of my own company, but like of the larger group 
of companies Ooh. above my ad agency and gave him like a very like impassioned speech about why they should not go into China and establish an ad agency. Uh, and the reason they were, they were thinking about doing it is because there were American companies in China who wanted to do business with American ad agencies because they were finding like the local Chinese ad agencies, they didn't like working with them. Mm -hmm. So they wanted American ad agencies to come in and establish agencies there so they could work with an American company. And I was explaining to him m many reasons why they should not go into China. Also, this was healthcare related, pharmaceuticals uh -huh. related. So I was telling him about, you know, everything from like uh, the pharmaceutical scams and uh, like, you know, the vaccine, uh, the things that were happening in China where it was like fake vaccines and like all of these quality control issues and how it could be very dangerous for a company to go in to China and get involved if they didn't know what they were getting into. Um, and in the end, uh, the group of ad agencies that my agency was part of did not go into China. Uh, I think there were some business reasons where it, like, it seemed like it wasn't a good fit for them. But I also hope that my uh, it was a Shelley reason this had some effect on this. And shortly after that, um, Bristol Myers Squibb, the big uh, British pharmaceutical company, got in a lot of trouble in China for bribing Chinese officials. Do you remember this? It was like oh, a yeah. big. It was a big scandal, and this was right after they had made the decision not to go into China. Very good. Because it was like, I talked to him twice, uh, and uh, like about a year apart. And the second time he was like, we've decided to not go. Well, maybe wow. you helped that company dodge a bullet, Shelley. I'd like to think so. But that's my point that like, even if you feel like you're not, you know, a decision maker. Yeah. You know, Wherever you are, you yeah. can tell people about the Chinese Communist Party because there are still plenty of people who don't know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's that's a really big way to make that kind of change. Yeah, it's 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 again like the connections people make is what can really change things. I mean, I think a lot of people people who watch the show, you might not realize how much that other people don't know about China. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like I was in a Facebook group for women who like to travel, and somebody posted about how she and her family had just finally escaped China after being stuck there for the last three years. And she's like, we're in Paris now and it's great. And there are just so many comments under that post being like, why did you have to escape China? What's going on there? Why couldn't you leave? You know, yeah, yeah no idea what was happening with the COVID in China. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a big reason why we, we started the China Unscripted podcast so we can get people like Anna on to essentially talk to you so you can spread the message even further amplification there we go yeah so that is an important thing about what you guys can do not just for this but all all of our episodes because we get that asked question a lot uh so that's why i'm gonna say thank you for watching china unscripted i'm chris chapel i'm shelly john and i'm matt Canesta. we'll see you next time